Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Excellence Cartel. Today, we are joined by a return of Kirsten Kurtowski, and we are going to talk about all things like a real deep dive on cholesterol. Uh, we did podcasts about heart disease, cholesterol, maybe about 10-ish back. A lot of people were like, yeah, it was okay, because I always ask for feedback, and I was like, well, I fucking know someone who can take it to a pro level. And she did not disappoint when she did the outline for this podcast, which we will go ahead and say we did not do. So you can go ahead and thank her in advance for what we are going to go over today. But uh, Kirsten, thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, tradition, we're going to go over the last seven days. And uh, Jason, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to begin actually. Okay. Like my seven days, it's really just been a lot of work focus. I'm done with my book. I submit the final draft uh, to go to my editor the last Friday of this month. I've run through it four different times. So I'm kind of like, what I don't know, I don't know at this point. Um, so I'm eager to learn about that. Uh, business has been really good. The coaches are adding clients. Uh, Aaron's starting to chip away at her 100 client wait list. Um, and it's been uh, business. We're redoing the website, working mm -hmm. on the YouTube videos, just a lot of good business stuff. Um, it's going to be weird getting back into coaching. I know Jay and I have talked a little bit about that. I think I talked to you a little bit about that, Jeff, in Tampa. After writing a book for 13 months, I'm kind of like, all right, well, what do I want to write about in coaching space anymore? I don't even know. But uh, otherwise, I've been working on my presentation for Copper and Iodine uh, for the coaching consortium. So you mm -hmm. guys expect if you guys are interested, I'll be posting more stuff in my stories, educational stuff that I'll be going over. Uh, and like what led me to Copper and Iodine, just so we're on it real quick, is it was for people who I fixed them hormonally in their blood work, but they still had issues like brain fog memory and things like that. And that's what led me into the micronutrient world. I know when Kirsten and I were together, we were looking at chromium at one point to try to help with different things. So um, that's kind of what got me into it. And I, I look forward to sharing like how it's helped some of my clients with you all. So you guys have applicable takeaways on how I was able to do it. So besides pimping that, Jeff Sue, we kicked you for your seven days, but can you talk about coaching consortium real quick? Yeah. Yeah. So the Co coaching consortium is an online based educational event um, coming up in April, and we have, you know, your favorites from the PEC um, panel, plus some new individuals like Sam Miller and William Grazione will be joining us. Uh, also, Megan Del Corral of Advanced Vitality HRT. Um, so we're going to be hosting a free workshop. A lot of you guys have already signed up for that this coming Sunday. Um, so we look forward to seeing you there and then we'll be, um, you know, giving out more information on the consortium, which is coming up soon. Sweet. How's your last seven? Seven days have been great, dude. Um, been really, really busy. Um, things are going great. I'm just trying to manage, you know, how many clients I want to take on, um, how many to give to Laura. Laura actually had an operation done. She had a deviated septum fix. Oh. So she, she's down for the count for a week. Um, so it's just me this week, but everything's good. I mean, you know, I had to pay taxes. So that was a little depressing. Um, you know, seeing the amount of money that I have to pay this year, you know, you, you do, you do well in business and then you're reminded of, uh, you get penalized for that. <laughs> so that's pay quarterly, don't you? No, I, I accrue everything in an account and I pay it all at once. Oh, when it, when it comes to tax time. Yeah. Yeah. I so thought I, if you made so much, you had to do quarterly. No, no, you don't have to do quarterly if you don't want to, but it's certainly a better way to manage it, uh, which will prevent you from spending it. But I have it all sitting in like a PayPal account. So um, mm -hmm. it's 
it's depressing to see that. But other than that, I have no complaints. Everything is good. Nice. Jay, last seven, sir. Hey, Jason, is that breast milk that you're... <laughs> oh, no, he froze up. No, he, he froze, froze he, right when he, he asked. He answer me in that came ask. <laughs> was that your internet or mine? That was your internet. That was yours. Oh, I totally... Let me ask the question again. Jason, take a drink <laughs> of your... Take a drink again. What you're, whatever you're drinking. Let's do it one more time. Do I have a weird, like, thing no, on it? No, just drink it. Hey, Jason, is that breast milk? <laughs> no. <laughs> so that sure. like colostrum, right? Yeah, it would have colostrum. It would be good yeah. for my health. Yeah. yeah. No, it's just some vanilla. Uh, oh. So perfect. <laughs> How's right. your last seven been? Uh, yeah. Seven, yeah. It, it, not bad. Um, like Jeff Sue, I'm kind of in that area where trying to determine how many more clients I want to, you know, add on. I've got a wait yeah. list. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to see if some of them can work with some of my coaches and, you know, go from there. And I kind of like fill it as I lose a client, you know, I'm kind of at that point right now. Um, what else? Uh, you know, <clears throat> not a whole lot going on with me, I guess, you know, it was a very relaxing weekend. Uh, had some nice uh, dinners, things like that. Um, got some good training in. But um, Aiden committed to uh, play in college. And so oh, was, hell yeah. Um, so he went to a D3, D2 school, actually, um, here nice. in Cincinnati. Actually, like 20 minutes from my house. So um, I've known him Thomas more for years. When I was, I played at center, which is a D3, and they used to be D3, and they've moved up. So he's going to play there, which will be really cool. I can catch all of his home games, and hopefully some of the away games won't be too terribly far either. So that's cool. Uh, Maddox, uh, this weekend, passed his black belt test. Um, about a month ago, he failed. It was the first time he had failed um, at any of his tests. And, you know, they're breaking boards, and he's a little guy. Um, and he couldn't get this front kick. And um he kind of actually really buckled down his coach or his teacher said and was coming to class and making sure that, you know, he was learning what he needed to learn and he broke them. So he's getting his black belt tonight. So um, we got a ceremony at six 30. So that'll be cool. Uh, I guess the last thing I'd like to announce is that uh, February 26th, I have my uh, course on the anatomy of a well-planned contest prep. It's been pretty popular. I think I already have maybe like 14 signups. If you guys want in it, just hit me up. Um, I've, I've probably can take 20. So there's some spots left, uh, be February 26 at 6 PM. Hey, Jeff, you didn't announce what time the coaching consortium was on Sunday. Uh, the it's on Saturday and on Sundays. So it starts no, no, the, the one coming up. I thought the one coming up was just the, um, Oh, Oh, the, uh, the actual, um, the workshop. Yeah. Just the workshop. Yeah. The free workshop I think is at Sunday night. Sunday yeah, night, Sunday, 6 p.m. It's 6 p.m. Eastern time. Yep, 6 to 8 p.m. Okay. So Maddox's basketball game is at 5.30, and they've been winning. So if they don't lose Friday, I probably am going to be out. I'll let you guys know. All That's right. It. No problem. All right. Kirsten, All right. how's your yeah. last seven days been? Uh, you know, things are good. Like I was saying before we uh, jumped in to record this, I moved recently. So mm -hmm. got a place that's on just over three acres, which has been really nice just for the dogs and to have the privacy and space. But we're Damn. constantly unpacking the house. 
Um, we actually took in a pretty emergent foster dog case just after the holidays. So that's been a lot of work, but really rewarding. And they actually decided just recently to officially adopt him. So that's been keeping us busy too. But what so- kind of dog? So it's actually a standard poodle. Um, and we have, I think, you know, we have a great Dane already. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of with this whole, just to be blunt, the whole doodle trend out there, everyone's taking poodles and mixing them because they don't want the shedding and just, you know, too many of them are out there. It's really unfortunately hurting dogs that are in need of good homes. So he was used as the breeder dog. He was kept outside for about two years of his life, never had human interaction. So pretty rough case, but he's come around so well. And honestly, he's doing amazing. Yeah, well, that's awesome to hear. Shit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but f- let's go ahead real quick because we're gonna. <clears throat> when I heard the feedback and wanted to really, I was like, okay, who can I contact? I knew because of us working together, what you did for a living, and I want you to go ahead and like talk about what you do, so yeah. people understand why you're so qualified to talk about what we're gonna talk about, and the different methodologies and all the different ways we could go with this conversation. But go ahead and give the audience a little bit of a refresher of who you are, your background, what you do day to day. Yeah. So just a reminder, I know I've been on before to talk to you guys about, you know, functional versus Western medicine. So my name's Kirsten. Um, By training, I am a physician assistant. I worked in internal medicine and cardiology for about 10 years, went back right before COVID for my doctorate, and I now work as a medical science liaison. Just to give a brief idea of what that is, it is a medical expert or medical resource within certain therapeutic areas. In my case, that's atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, which very much includes lipids and heart failure. So my job is to keep up on all of the current research. What is the most up-to-date out there? What does science say? What do we have proof of? And then talk to practitioners and make sure practitioners are also up-to-date on that. Everything I do is just knowing what's out there. This isn't research that I personally do. Um, You know, and it's very unbiased. It's just this is what we have and relaying that message to busy providers. Damn it. Sounds like it's very intricate to say the least. <laughs> it's, it's, it's busy and a, a lot of studying, yeah. which I personally like. Yeah, no, it's I, we can relate as coaches. We have to do a lot of studying on our mm-hmm. own to keep improving our craft. Um, okay, let's get into this. So what is cholesterol? And let's go primarily over LDL and HDL. And then I want to kind of get into the topic of like, is all cholesterol bad? And yep. like why we need some and don't need to listen to doctors who want to like go to zero or whatever that number is they're trying to drive people to. Yeah. So just first of all, cholesterol is very misunderstood. There's kind of here's what research says and what science says. And then here's what's reported in mainstream media. So cholesterol is this waxy type substance in our body. It's required. We need cholesterol, but it can't move through the body by itself. So it's actually carried on what's called lipoproteins to and from cells. And these lipoproteins, you can equate them to boats or ships or however you want to say it. But these lipoproteins will carry cholesterol to the cells for all the functions that we need and then carry them away to the liver to be exported by the body. And the two most common subtypes of lipoproteins are HDL and LDL, which stands for high-density lipoprotein and low-density lipoprotein. They have slightly different functions in the body. And like I said, we need cholesterol, and we can definitely get into that. We need it for cell membranes. We need it for bile acid production, hormones, vitamins. But just like anything else, too much of a good thing becomes a bad thing. So over time, cholesterol, especially LDL and what's called other ApoB-containing lipoproteins, 
can build up inside the arterial walls and actually lead to plaque progression, which can narrow the arteries and lead to events, or that plaque over time can rupture, leading to clots, which can lead to myocardial infarction or strokes. Um, okay, so let, let's get into this then. Um, why is it that every time someone's got bad cholesterol, they're always prescribed the statin? Yeah. Why are they not like talked to about diet or exercise? And I can relate as a coach. That's a hard one to talk to people about. Like they are yeah. like very, I'm not going to off my stat and have a heart attack and die. And I'm like, no, no, no. you know what yeah. I mean? And so can you give us a little insight into that before we proceed forward? Yeah. So first of all, I've been in that position as an internal medicine provider of telling patients you need a statin. And I get that argument back and I understand statins have you know, somewhat of a bad reputation with side effects. Um, you know, a lot of it's just this highly publicized people think that they're going to have side effects before they even start them. So when it comes to each patient, everyone's very unique. And there's a very clear answer of why some patients get statins and why some are more lifestyle changes. You can actually go back to what's called the 2018 AHA ACC cholesterol guidelines. This is a flowchart made by the biggest experts in cholesterol management, as well as all current research. And it shows you really which patients need to be on therapy and which can do lifestyle changes. So you can break it into three easy categories. Your patients with LDLs over 190 should be on some kind of cholesterol lowering therapy and statins are typically first line. Mm. If you have a patient with diabetes, they should be on a moderate to a high intensity statin. Your third category is going to be patients with an LDL level of between 70 and 190 milligrams per deciliter and ages 40 to, you know, 79 or 40 to 70 years old. And that's going to be the majority of us that fall into that category. You can actually take these patients in the cholesterol guidelines, fill out the risk assessment. This is a very easy calculation that's right in the guidelines. It spits out a percentage and you can take a look at the guidelines and see where patients fall. If they're less than 5% risk, you do recommend lifestyle changes. So those are the patients where I'm like, lifestyle changes, um, supplements, all of that is fine. If their risk is greater than 20%, they should be on some kind of a high or some kind of a statin therapy with reduction in their LDL by at least 50%. And then those that fall between that 5% and 20%, you'll actually look at other risk enhancing factors. So those are patients where you're gonna look and say, do they have metabolic syndrome, chronic kidney disease, inflammatory diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, um, preeclampsia actually is a risk enhancing factor. Really? So, yep. That's where we would look at those to determine, you know, if they're intermediate, but they have one of those, you'd lead towards statin. If you still don't know, that's where you do calcium scoring. Question. Why does diabetes change the degree of the intensity of the statin? Yeah, so diabetics are at extremely, extremely high risk for cardiovascular events, unfortunately. Uh -huh. So this is a subgroup of patients where they're at very high risk. In fact, a patient that has had some kind of a cardiovascular event in the past, their goal LDL is going to be 70 milligrams per deciliter or less. If you're diabetic, the major associations like the endocrinology societies actually want these patients to have LDL levels of less than 55 milligrams per deciliter. So they're just a very Ooh. high risk group. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. Okay. So studies uh, can prove if you put them on a statin, it does lower the risk. So then before we recorded, Jeff brought this up, but in, to go forward, what are normal cholesterol levels and like what does ethnicity 
family background, cardiovascular events, like you said. What is genetics? Can I have a question first? Sure. Are we talking type one diabetics or type two? So we're technically talking all the cholesterol guidelines just say diabetes. So we're technically calling all diabetics under that category. So it just says diabetes. So, I mean, I've worked with a lot of people with metabolic syndrome (laughs) and, you know, they were put on statins by fixing all the metabolic issues. We no longer needed uh, a statin. So I guess my question is, do doctors just not believe that people will put that kind of effort in? Because every one of my people that put the effort in, we no longer needed it. Um, So is it more kind of like the medical community saying, oh, they're not going to do all that work. Like, you got to do this as a band-aid. I'm just curious because like I've always been able to get them off if they're willing to do all the work. And mm-hmm. granted, it took it takes six to eight months to reverse yeah. all that, if not longer. Absolutely. So I'm just curious, like why is it more reactive and not like preventative? <clears throat> I think it's a great question. Um, I'm huge on preventative medicine. I'm all for supplements, lifestyle factors. I mean, Jeff knows that that's something that I'm very big on. Um, so it's a great question. Yes. I think that part of it is that to get a diabetic patient to an LDL of less than 55 milligrams per deciliter with lifestyle factors is extremely, extremely difficult. So that is one factor, but regardless, these patients just having diabetes does put them at much higher risk of AIDS. We already know that that's the case. So it is still recommended in the guidelines because if they truly have diabetes, they're still walking around at very high risk. So even with lifestyle factors, it's still recommended to put them on some kind of a statin therapy to prevent events. Okay. So can I follow up? So I get it if they still have diabetes, but if you have someone who's, you know, um, A1C is now in range, Mm -hmm. their fasted insulin is under 10, their glucoses are coming at, you know, 80 to 90. And my, in my world, that's not type two diabetes anymore. So then do they have to really be a 55 LDL? I think it's a great question. And honestly, it probably is going to depend on the practitioner that you ask. For me personally, as a PA, if I'm seeing a patient and they're Mm -hmm. able to get to those levels, I would be okay continuing lifestyle factors with very close follow-up. You know, they're not getting a lipid panel once a year. Those are patients that are probably going to get it multiple times a year. They're still checking blood sugars regularly. We're still checking an A1C every three to six months. So that's personally what I would do. Now, I think different practitioners may give you different answers on that. Cool. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So let's go over the, uh, what is normal cholesterol levels then? Because, you know, I think that that's a skewing. I mean, you have some people who say it has to be over 40 on the HDL, below yeah. hundred on the LDL, triglycerides is close to under what under hundred, I think is the number 159 or 150. Yep. 150. You know, we don't um, want them anywhere near 150. But no, yeah. hell no. <laughs> I, remember my last blood work, mine were 41. I was like, totally yeah. sweet. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, dude, it was super low. Um, I've always had that though. So, what does all this shit mean? And does you know, does people's yeah. ethnicity, like Jeff and all of us were talking about before we went on, what does their family background? How much does this play into there? And yeah. then, of course, where they go in terms of do they do a statin therapy or not? Because they might be screwed genetically and they've got no choice. Yeah. So it's kind of a loaded question. So genetics, first yeah. of all, play a huge role in cholesterol, and we can definitely go down that path and talk a little bit about it. To answer the first question of just basic lab values, because I think people are wondering that just based on what we're talking about, what's normal and what's not. When you go to your primary care, you know, PA, NP physician, whoever it is, and they check a lipid panel, you are going to be testing the amount of cholesterol being carried on those lipoproteins. 
you're not getting the lipoprotein number themselves or that particle number. So the only reason I bring that up is that we do have further testing today. If you ever read about things like APOA, APOB, there's some even you know more in-depth cholesterol panels that we can get. But your basic panel is total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, and triglycerides that you would go to your HCP and get. For the average person, so if we're talking like normal, healthy person, total cholesterol, the lab is going to spit out these values and say that they want you to be less than 200 for total cholesterol, your LDL less than 100, HDL above 40, and triglycerides typically less than 150. But again, it does depend on the patient. So if you have a patient that has had some kind of an event, and when I say event, that means myocardial infarction, stroke, TIA, stent placed, peripheral arterial disease, something, those patients, again, you're going to want them to be less than 70 milligrams per deciliter, not less than 100. You want it even lower. And again, diabetics, you want it even lower than that. So it really does depend on the patient. And again, we do have to look at those risk enhancing factors. And that can include things like ethnicity, just like you were saying. Um, So I believe the lowest risk for LDL is in Caucasian, And the highest is going to be in Hispanic. So if you look at African-American and Hispanic populations, they tend to have the highest numbers of LDL cholesterol. So there are some practitioners that will treat them a little bit more aggressively due to that risk that they have. Yeah. Yeah. They also have higher incidence of PCOS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What is the role of LDL in, uh, I guess that is, so it's ASCVD, it's cardiovascular disease, so I guess osteoporosis. Uh, or however I just butchered that name, CBD. So what is the role of LDL in that? <laughs> yeah, so LDL, and just to clarify, so ASCBD stands for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Oh, so close. Um, you got it, you got it. Um, so this is a really interesting topic. And I will tell you that there are hundreds, if not thousands of articles published on that where we can directly prove the role of LDL in plaque progression. So plaque progression is directly proportional to the amount of LDL in your body. And again, what's also called other ApoB-containing lipoproteins. Essentially, the more LDL you have, the more plaque progression that you're going to have. There's a linear relationship between the two. We know for a fact if you take LDL and you lower it, that those patients have a lower risk of cardiac events. There was actually a big meta-analysis that was done um, on 26 different statin studies, over 170,000 participants, that show there's actually a dose-dependent relationship. So if you take a patient and you lower their LDL by 40 milligrams per deciliter, you're going to be giving them a 22% risk reduction in terms of cardiovascular events over a five-year period of time. The other thing we know is with LDL, it's not just a set number in time we really have to look at LDL exposure over somebody's lifetime, meaning that it's about both magnitude and duration. Um, So if somebody is exposed to LDL levels that are slightly high over time, they're building plaque in their arteries. It's going to be very slow, but they're still building plaque. That plaque production actually doesn't halt until we get to around 70 milligrams per deciliter. So we can actually take a patient, and there's a great article on this by Brian Ferentz from 2017, but there's tons more that go through this magnitude and duration and exposure to LDL. But you can actually see if you take a patient who's 20 years old, their LDL is 200, and they remain on that same trajectory over life, 
they're at extremely high risk of cardiac disease and their risk of MI will actually double with every decade of life. If you take that same patient, their LDL is 80 and they're 20 years old and they stay on that trajectory, they won't reach that same risk until they're in their mid 60s. They're going to stay relatively low risk through their life. Damn, it makes me wish I had gotten cholesterol blood work in my 20s. Right. Um, what? So it, it sounds to me like you haven't really touched on HDL. So w- does HDL even matter then? Because I know that I have a hard time keeping my HDL above 35, like mm-hmm. most guys, especially the test therapy doesn't help. Um, but is there like a movement kind of away from that and more the focus on LDL being the total problem with why you might get heart disease and die, you know, in bed with a hooker at 68. <laughs> Which happens. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> can happen. I've heard crazier patient stories. Um, oh, I bet. <laughs> so when it comes to um, LDL cholesterol, you know, the focus on LDL is really because it is the most readily modifiable. We know how to modify LDL. We have drugs to do it. We know which lifestyle factors do it. So that's really why it's one of the big things that we are focusing on and that research is focusing on. HDL gets a little bit tricky. So the thought process was that HDL is protective for many reasons, one of which is that patients that had HDL levels of less than 40 milligrams per deciliter had higher risk of heart disease and certain cancers. In addition, when you look at the mechanism of HDL, the job is actually to remove cholesterol from cells and bring it to the liver to be exported. So there was always this thought process of, it doesn't matter if your total cholesterol is high because your HDL is high and it's protective, or your LDL can maybe be slightly higher than we want because your HDL is protecting you. You know, we're kind of moving away from that thought process. This is an area where there's a lot of research going on. So I think we're gonna learn more in the upcoming years But newer studies are actually showing that patients that have very high HDL levels, as in like 80s, 90s, low 100s, are actually having a higher risk of events and poorer outcomes. Mm. And actually, pharmaceutical companies tried to develop HDL increasing drugs many years ago with that thought process that they were protective. There was actually some drugs on the market that increased HDL by as much as 100%. And unfortunately, these patients had adverse outcomes. They didn't have reduction in cardiovascular events. And there was actually some patient deaths. Hmm. Wow. Oh, shit. I never knew that. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the bodybuilding world, we've always been. So does me taking Anivar and driving my HDL down to eight hurt me at all then? Uh, that one probably <laughs> could hurt you. You know, we do know. I've you're seen a four on mine right? before, Jeff. You've seen a oh, four before? Gosh. Most I've seen is eight on mine. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh pretty dang low. I mean, but of course, Anabar, you're at least cycling, so it's not not an all the time thing. Yeah, it wasn't a full full time yeah. thing. <laughs> you know, but if I had a patient, I think I would love if their levels were kind of between that maybe 40 and 80 range. Now we could find out new information in the upcoming years as we're studying this, but I think that tends to be your ideal range. Okay. Person, I have a question. Um, and I, you might not be able to answer this, which is okay, but this is something that a lot of people are probably wondering about. So it's two parts. First part is I have seen, and I'm sure Jeff and Jason and many coaches out there have seen that in very, very stressed clients or during contest prep, and I'm not talking about using drugs. I'm talking about natural extreme dieting. We often see an increase in triglycerides in total cholesterol um, and sometimes LDL. And it's mind boggling because 
These clients are often eating very low fat diets, or if they are eating fat, it's healthy omegas, great sources of fat, but yet stress seems to make triglycerides and LDL increase. My, and my question is, can you explain why to our listeners? And my second question is with anabolic use in men and in women, you know, we often see a decline in cholesterol, specifically HDL. Is there a, a mechanism of action that causes this? Yeah, those are great questions. And I will be honest, I can't 100% explain them. When it comes to the mechanism, I'm sure there right. is one. I honestly would have to look up what that mechanism is for that, you know, they usually get this bump in the bad cholesterol, not bad, but your LDL cholesterol, um, you know, like you said, and their HDL goes down. So that absolutely is the case. I don't know the full mechanism, but I'm sure that's something I could look up and find out for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you're right. Anytime that your body is under stress, that can lead to cholesterol levels being off. And again, I don't know if I can explain that full mechanism of why, but we know anytime that we are increasing inflammation in the body, which stress is, of course, is going to cause that, mm -hmm. that's going to lead to cholesterol levels being off. I mean, one of the mechanisms when we look at plaque progression is just damage to the artery walls, which comes from some kind of stress. And sometimes that's physical stress. Sometimes that's things that can cause damage like cigarette smoke or uncontrolled blood pressure. But at the end of the day, stress is stress to the body. I mean, that's leading to this, you know, mechanism and cascade of plaque production and cholesterol levels that are off. I always thought it was because cortisol liberates fatty acids just as much as it does glycogen yeah. into the bloodstream. And therefore you might see cholesterol up, um, triglycerides up because it's being liberated for running from the tiger, but it's just constant. I don't know how it works with the LDL, but I see that too, where someone will be all pretty healthy and their totals up, their LDLs up. And like Jeff said, the diet's not super high fat They're but they're dieting hard and, and they're stressed. So, yeah. um, I, I don't know. That's my, just, just, I'm going to, no, I mean, I'm going to research this now. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually think I'm going to go down that road a little yeah. bit too, because stress is such a factor, but just like you said, as we all know, when you're stressed, your body's in this breakdown state of breaking down sugars and fats and everything to use in that whole run from the tiger situation. So that's a very true point too. Um, what is you said this one has longer exposure to high LDL-C and how it translates to earlier onset of cardiovascular events and greater uh, risk of cardiovascular disease. Yeah, so that's what I was kind of explaining before is mm -hmm. that, you know, again, it's all about your exposure to LDL or the technical term is LDL-C, but we just, we a lot of times just say LDL. Um, but yeah, your exposure over time is really what is leading to that risk of cardiac events. So you just kind of over time, you're exposed to very low levels of LDL, you're slowly building up plaque in your arteries. So the higher the LDL level is, the longer you're exposed to that, the more at risk you are for cardiac death and cardiac events. Okay. How do healthcare practitioners determine who needs treatment for cholesterol and who actually needs to be started on a statin? Uh, statin? You have your basic guidelines uh, that we yeah. can go over. And then if we could go over the calcium, uh, yeah. coronary calcium score. So it was determining who needs to be on a statin versus not. That again is going to go back to those guidelines that I went through where you're going to go ahead, do the risk calculation, figure out is your patient low risk, borderline, intermediate, or high. And you can actually follow those guidelines directly to figure out who needs to be on a statin or not. And as I said, there's other factors when you fall in those in-between groups of 
looking at risk enhancing factors and genetics and family history. But if you still are not sure, or maybe your patient's even fighting you, and I've had this before, where patients like, I just, I really don't want to go on, you know, some kind of drug therapy, I'd rather do supplements. That's where I really like to use coronary calcium scoring. Now, coronary calcium scoring, it's just this very low dose CT scan. It's easy, cheap to get, um, great resource for patients. That can tell you if a patient is at risk. So if they have a score that is higher, um, you know, above zero, and especially if they're over 100, that's going to lead towards putting patient on some kind of cholesterol lowering therapy. Typically, we would use a statin first line, but there are other medical therapies outside of statins, of course. If your score is zero, that's going to lead towards, you know, maybe we don't need to initiate therapy. We just look at lifestyle factors. The one thing about the coronary calcium score, though, that you need to understand is that you cannot diagnose a patient with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease by getting this score done. It only tells us risk. And what it's telling us is these plaques over time in your arteries can actually harden and, you know, this um, can create this hardened calcium substance. So that's what it's telling us. Now, if you do this score in a very young person who hasn't had time for that plaque to harden, then they have this soft plaque and sometimes you don't get the most accurate score. It's a great test for people that are, you know, middle-aged and older to determine if they have any plaque in their arteries and if they may need treatment. But again, if somebody's 25 and you get this and their score is zero, it doesn't really help you a ton because at age 25, your score should be zero. And it doesn't mean you're protected through life because you still can be building up uh, calcium in your arteries over time. No, I like that. I'm still not getting one. Uh, don't want to. I don't, <laughs> I added, it's easy, man. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to know the future. Nope. Uh, are there medications for cholesterol treatment besides statin? Um, yeah. I presume there has to be other ones that we're not aware of that might be there. And then let's talk about the supplements yeah, and what does research sure. show if it actually works or not. Yeah. So, well, let's start with, you know, drug therapy that's out there by pharmaceutical companies. So yes, there are absolutely other medications out there besides statins. I'm not going to go into specific brand names by any means, but statins are definitely the most proven. We know that they reduce events. We know that they improve cardiovascular outcomes. We have, like I said, thousands of statin studies out there. However, not all patients can tolerate statins. There are a lot of tricks and tips to get patients to tolerate them of changing dosing regimens or the amount that they're taking. So plenty of things you can do to get a patient on a statin. If they just cannot tolerate it though, there are other drug classes. So for example, one is bempidoic acid. That's an oral pill that works along the same pathway as statins, but it works a little more upstream. So the company that makes it, their big marketing strategy is, hey, this pill doesn't have the side effects that statins do. You don't get the myalgias and the muscle aches and things like that, but it's not as efficacious as statins. So it only reduces cholesterol around, I forget the exact percentage, it's 40 something percent, whereas statins are 50 to 60 percent. Other oral pills you can look at out there would be things like azetamide. That's a great add-on to statin therapy, but by itself only decreases LDL cholesterol by around 18%. And there's these whole new classes of medications out there that are injectable therapies for cholesterol. These are therapies where patients only have these injections every two weeks, four weeks, or six months, depending on which medication they're on. And that lowers cholesterol or your LDL cholesterol by about 50 to 60%. Um, so again, my job is not to tell practitioners to use one medication over the other. 
But just to educate them, these are the options. And I think it's important for patients to know that too, just because yeah. if they're having problems with their cholesterol lowering medication, that there are other things that they can take. What about niacin? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. So let's get into the supplement part. When it comes to supplements, at the end of the day, none of them lower LDL cholesterol as much as drug therapy does. So you're usually going to get about a 10 to 20% drop in LDL cholesterol with supplements. And that does include niacin, which it's not used as heavily as it once was in all honesty. Some of it's just because it's not as efficacious. Some it's because patients do have some flushing and side effects with that. And it's interesting if you look at all of these articles on supplements, you are going to find some great studies that show true benefit of supplements, and you're going to find some that show supplements have no benefit. So this is where it really comes down to the provider and patient talking. If I have a patient that's generally overall healthy, their LDL slightly high, they don't have a bunch of medical comorbidities. They're not high risk. I am all for supplements, whether it's CoQ10, red yeast rice, whatever it is, niacin, completely fine. And I'll recheck a lipid panel in 12 weeks. But if you have a high risk patient, big family history, they've had an event before, you know, they really need to be on something more to drop that LDL. And it's interesting with supplements. So just to kind of show you the two sides of this in Western medicine, Big study came out at the American Heart Association in November where the overwhelming theme was, hey, supplements don't work. It was this study done by physicians at the Cleveland Clinic, very great group of cardiologists, and they were comparing resuvastatin or Crestor, five milligrams, versus the most common supplements. So like CoQ10, turmeric, red yeast, right? Um, the study went on for 30 days, showed that the Crestor group did significantly better those in the supplement groups had very little change in LDL. Some actually had increases in it. But then what's interesting is in December, the Journal of American Cardi- uh, College of Cardiology had this article on you know, mic- um, micronutrients and lowering cardiovascular risk that showed the opposite. It actually showed some of these supplements out there really benefited the patients and lowered their cardiovascular risk. So studies very much are mixed. Uh, I have a question. It's just because I read a book on vitamin K2. Yeah. They were talking about in it, it shows that vitamin K2 helps reverse osteoporosis um, and hardening of the arteries. Is that true? Um, and there's, I know there's a whole bunch of stuff because the reason it piqued my interest was they're actually looking at a blood test for vitamin K2 to be able to determine, I guess, even better than a calcium channel score, uh, potentially like your risk for cardiovascular, uh, event. So I was curious what your thoughts were on vitamin K2 before I want to talk about like how low LDL could possibly go. So when it comes to vitamin K2, and I'm not an expert on this, you're right. I have read some articles with newer research that does show that it can actually prevent plaque production and actually reverse it too. Now, again, I think this is newer research, so there's still a lot to be done. There's only a few studies I've read on this. So I couldn't tell you dosages, what's safe to take, what's not, um, you know, how much is going to reduce it. And I think obviously it's going to depend on how much plaque a patient has and what their LDL level is at the end of the day. But I agree. I've actually read information on that. So it's an interesting new area. And I think it'd be interesting to see what they develop in the next few years with those tests. Uh, yeah, I'm intrigued by it when I was reading about it. Yeah. Uh, now, since we've kind of like narrowed it down to LDLs, the enemy. How low can you drive this damn thing? And as coaches, when we get clients, at what point do we kind of like, uh, 
really worry if their cholesterol isn't budging or if things just aren't getting better? What could we be doing proactively to help get their LDL lower? Yeah. So for LDL lowering, so to answer your question on how low is too low, interesting answer. We used to think that if patients went below 20 milligrams per deciliter, that there was concern over maybe patients having confusion or hemorrhagic stroke, maybe issues with hormone production or infertility. New evidence is really pointing away from this. And it's interesting, actually, American Heart Association, an article was even published today on this that I was just reading earlier. The technical answer is that they're not finding that there is a too low. The new rationale for cholesterol is really the lower, the better, and the lower, the longer, the better, especially looking at that Mm. magnitude and duration picture. Mm. So there's a few ways that we know this. One, we've been doing cholesterol studies for years. And so there are certain patients that always just respond really well to therapy. So in your basic studies for, you know, drug studies or supplement studies, there are patients in those studies that get to less than 20 milligrams per deciliter and aren't having any adverse effects or events by any means. Um, But now we're starting to see current research where they're purposely taking patients and lowering it down to see how they do. Another factor to consider that I think is really interesting is that there are people in the population that genetically just don't produce high levels of LDL. There are certain things out there called like loss of function PCSK9 genes, where these patients are born with abnormally low levels of LDL. They walk around with LDL levels less than 20 milligrams per deciliter their whole life. They don't have any adverse events, um, you know, adverse effects, no issues with hormones, no issues with fertility. They actually, it's it's protective. I mean, they have like a 90% decreased risk of a cardiac event or heart disease. So, you know, I don't know what practitioners want to do. I think everybody practices a little different, but just clearly from what the evidence says, there's not really a dangerous too low point right now. Hmm, that's intriguing to hear. Now, I guess my last question before I want to talk about LPA to round this out uh, to bring our hour to a close. Does how does food and cholesterol translate, or are they connected at all? Because I know food has cholesterol in it, but yeah. is it something to do with trans fat? People need to watch. Is it this? Is it that? Does that yeah. even matter? And what should people be doing to help their cholesterol efforts of lowering their LDL? With so we're finding that food is not, cholesterol and food is not as big of a factor as we thought it was. Typically your genetics are your main factor for cholesterol. Your body produces about 90% of what it needs. Um, the brain actually makes its own cholesterol. A lot of people don't realize that. Only about 10% or so actually comes from what you eat. A small amount is absorbed by the intestines back into the body. So some of it does come from what you eat. And again, everyone's different. So some people do tend to be a little bit more susceptible to cholesterol and food than others do. So I don't want to make a blanket statement about that, but we really find that it's genetics and just how your body produces and makes cholesterol is what we need to look at. Um, You know, and it's interesting when it comes to cholesterol in the diet, what we find is that foods that tend to be higher in cholesterol, a lot of times are naturally higher in those trans fats or saturated fats. And we do have evidence that that can lead to increased LDL levels. So a lot of times it's not the cholesterol from food. It's actually the other types of fats that are in food that are contributing to that. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition, you know, refined carbohydrates and sugars do lead to inflammation in the body and higher risk of heart disease. So we know that too. Hmm. Um, Okay. Now you teased us before you went live talking about LPA and how it was the hottest thing. 
What is LPA and why is it the hottest thing? Yeah. So this is an interesting topic. I just want people to be aware of it, um, you know, because you're going to hear about this. So LP little a is essentially a genetic causal risk factor for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. What that means is that you are born with it. You can't necessarily do anything right now about it. You are born with it. And it's something that you get from your parents and you pass on to your kids. Guidelines right now say that individuals should have LP little a checked and the European guidelines, let me clarify that because the United States doesn't have guidelines yet. This should be checked once in a lifetime. So this is not something that you would check every year on your lipid panel. It's a test that you can ask your practitioner to do, or you can go online. Some of the like Ulta lab tests and sites like this, you can order your own LP little a for like $20. This is not like this extensive genetic testing. And that will tell you what your level is. So with LP little a, it actually puts you at very high risk for aortic valve stenosis, uh, myocardial infarction, and strokes. <clears throat> and to give <throat> you an idea of, you know, kind of just to relate this back, I think an interesting example of this one is Bob Harper, if you guys remember him from Biggest Loser, yeah. right? Healthy guy, picture of health, normal cholesterol labs, had a massive heart attack. And if you actually look up the information, the medical information from him, it was actually due to elevated LP little a normal cholesterol. Everything else looked great in terms of LDL, but he had this elevated LP little a level. So it's important to know that it's independent. You can lower your LDL level. Your cholesterol can be perfect. You can eat perfect. It is this independent genetic risk factor. So I really want patients to get it checked once in a lifetime to know if they have it. Damn, I didn't know that at all. Does homeocysteine even matter? Should people be checking that at all? You know, I did not use it a lot in practice, I'll be honest with you, but there yeah. are many practitioners that do that want that on the lower side. Um, I forget the actual cutoff, but for that one, of course, you know, the lower is better for homocysteine level. So I definitely do think that that's a factor still. I just don't see it used as much in the cardiology, lipidology world, but, you know, I'm a big believer in it. Okay. Uh, guys, you got any final questions before we ask her if there's anything else she wants to bow tie this baby up with? Any uh, that LP little A was super cool. I'm gonna actually probably know is that an expensive test? He said it's 20 bucks. What she was saying, yeah, it's not typically now. That's some people, their bad. insurance, it may be a little more expensive, but I know I went online myself and got it from those sites where you can buy your own test, and it was yeah. 20. dollars. Um, yeah, you know, and it definitely it's kind of it's pro-atherogenic, so it does lead to plaque progression, but in addition, it's actually pro-inflammatory um, and pro-thrombotic. So it actually, in some ways, is kind of a little bit of a stickier substance and almost quote unquote worse than LDL, but it's very independent from LDL. So it's interesting. We're going to see a lot of research on that. Uh, I guess my question uh, last is, um, you know, I, I, I've heard some bodybuilders talk about particle size matters mm -hmm. Do doctors and um, PAs. Do you guys get into that? Like, I don't really see it much on tests, but I know yeah. it can be ran. How does that really work? Like, which, like, I don't know. I, I've seen a few tests and I wasn't sure exactly how to read it. Cause I just don't see them much. Yeah. So that kind of gets into what I was talking about before. And I don't want to get too far into the weeds with that because I think your general general listener probably is not getting those labs checked. Yeah. But when I was talking about cholesterol being carried on these lipoproteins or those ships or boats, these lipoproteins have this protein on them called an, you know, ApoB is going to be your most yep. common. 
right? So you can actually measure, when you measure that or those lipoproteins, you're measuring the number of particles. And particle size is also a factor because particles within certain size are able to get into the arteries easier and build plaque essentially. So there are all of these extensive tests out there where you can learn about particle number and particle size. And the average person typically doesn't get these done. A lot of times it's lipidologist or cardiologist checking these if they need either A, more information on the patient or B, they're high risk. All right. Well, um, what else would you like to close out on? Is there anything we didn't touch that line? It was probably the most in-depth outline. Sorry, Brandon DeCruz, but she smoked <laughs> you on this outline. Um, is there anything else you would like for everybody to know? Um, it was everything I thought it would be. So thank you very yeah. much for coming on. Cause I think that that was the stuff I never even heard. Yeah. You know, I think the biggest thing I would just say again is just to reiterate my job is to be unbiased and just say, this is all the research that's out there. This is overwhelmingly what the evidence says. But at the end of the day, each practitioner is different. So just because evidence points to LDL, the lower, the better, doesn't mean that every practitioner is going to try to get a patient's LDL levels to zero. I just want them to know that if they have a patient that responds really well, that it's safe and they're not at risk of having an adverse event. So just to reiterate, you know, there is a difference sometimes between here's what research shows and then here's how somebody is actually practicing or how I would even practice as a PA. A hundred percent. All right. Where can everybody follow you at? Do you do any consulting work for people? If not, you should as a side hustle, or I will <laughs> right. gladly take you on it, uh, Relentless. Uh, but anything where people get hold of you and follow you and kind of yeah. see the work you do? Um, You know, I actually use LinkedIn a lot, a lot. I mean, not everybody does, but in pharmaceutical device industries, medicine, LinkedIn's still pretty big. So always welcome to look me up on there. I do have a professional Twitter that I use. And then I think my Instagram is just Kirsten Gertowski, my name. I don't really do a lot of professional work on Instagram, but after my last <laughs> podcast with you guys, I did have people reach out and DM me and send me questions. So I'm always happy to answer questions. Sweet. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I know, like I said, I learned some stuff. I'm sure those two guys did, but uh, thank you again. And we'll probably have you back on uh, maybe to go over some of our blood work and to criticize all of us, but uh, okay. I feel more confident because I've never seen an LDL of mine over a hundred. So I'm pretty happy after hearing yeah. this. I'm like, woohoo. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, it was nice chat with y'all. See y'all next week. See ya later. Hey.